All right, what's up, Traders Point family? Hope you guys are having a great day. Uh, man, it, it's been already uh, just such a great day uh, for me personally, because uh, Lindsay and I got the opportunity to baptize our youngest uh, this morning. So we're super thrilled about that. So, uh, man, uh, there isn't anything that you can do or say it's going to make me have a bad day because of that. And so I'm really glad that you guys are here. I want to welcome you across all of our locations. And if you're joining us online, we're super thrilled that you'd be with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, get it open to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, because that's where we're going to be spending all of our time together today. And as you're turning there and as you're kind of getting situated, just want you to know that uh, last Sunday night, we had our very first campus vision night at our Plainfield campus. And we just had an incredible time uh, getting together. I've got a few images of that evening behind me. And uh, we got together to worship and to talk. And we were just really celebrating all that God has done in our past as a church. And then asking the question, okay, God, what do you wanna do next in and through us? And we just had an incredible time. And I want you to experience and be a part of that as well. And so, uh, you know, we're doing our own little, you know, uh, Eros tour and we're bringing this to a campus near you. All right. All the 15 year old girls got that and they love me for it. All right. So, uh, but we're bringing this to a campus near you. Uh, the, the next one is uh, Friday night at our Carmel campus at 7 p.m. And the next Sunday evening, our downtown campus at 6 p.m. Midtown, Fishers and Northwest. You can uh, see the dates and times locations uh, on the screen behind me. And I really wanna encourage you to make it a priority and be there. You don't need to RSVP. There's gonna be kids programming. If you're looking at the date of your campus vision night and you're like, oh, I've already got plans or I'm gonna be out of town, come to another one. Uh, it's gonna be the exact same content and we don't want you to miss it. And uh, every person that shows up uh, in person to a campus vision night gets free merch, right? You get a free t-shirt, all right? I know how to get you guys to things, all right? Uh, free t-shirts and these shirts won't be available till later in the fall, but if you come to Vision Night, you get it and you get it free. So uh, I wanna encourage you uh, to be there for that. Well, uh, if you're just now joining us, whether in person or online, we have been in a series of messages. We have two weeks left where we've just been covering some really light, fluffy topics that, you know, all of us kind of see eye to eye on and we have no opinions about. Uh, actually, uh, we've been covering some really uh, tough topics. And I was talking to somebody about this earlier today. You know, I think that part of the reason why, you know, the last few weeks and, and today's going to be no different, where it's been a little bit tense. And I think the reason why is because we are just not used to hearing about topics like this without it being incredibly emotional and divisive. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to model for us a third way, you know, to, to be able to, to talk about these things that kind of even handedly and rationally, but more than that, like passionately for sure, but mostly pastorally. Like that we want to be able to, to think deeply and thoughtfully about these really, really important issues. And really the idea is that we've just been taking a handful of topics, not an exhaustive list by any means, but just a handful of topics that are oftentimes at the center of somebody's decision to deconstruct. Now, deconstruction, if you're not familiar with the term, is a term where somebody who maybe used to consider themselves a believer or a Christian, maybe you grew up in church or at one time or another, you considered yourself to be a person of faith and then something happened. You know, maybe you went through a crisis or a, a season of suffering or pain and you just cried out to God, like, God, where are you? And why would you bring this into my life? And why would you allow this? And why won't you deliver me from it? And those are really, really good questions. But then you took those questions, maybe to an authority figure, maybe a pastor or a teacher or a parent in your life, and you didn't get any good answers to it. Or worse yet, 
Maybe their reaction to you was one of anger or defensiveness, or, or maybe they shamed you. And you're kind of like, well, if that's gonna be the response, then I'm out. Or maybe you kind of grew up in a, in a somewhat of like a legalistic, kind of strict house, religious household. And then you went off to college and you saw this whole other way of living. And you're like, oh man, sin is fun. And you just kind of like pursued a different lifestyle and you kind of followed your heart wherever that was gonna go. And you're just kind of being true to yourself and you're just kind of following after that. And so you entered into this journey, so to speak, to take apart, dismantle, reshape, or in many instances, abandon the faith altogether. You take that uh, with maybe an absence of a really clear and compelling um, uh, reasoning for the intent and God's plans and purposes for your life that maybe the church just hasn't historically provided. And it's a recipe for deconstruction. Now, all of that is, all those topics are the background. And really what I wanna invite you to do is not to deconstruct, but to reconstruct and to reconstruct a more durable, authentic faith. And that really kind of brings me to what we're talking about today is that oftentimes when it comes to somebody's deconstruction, what ends up happening is that uh, the deconstruction was not of, here's how I'm gonna kind of phrase this, real Christianity, but a poor or false representation of it. So I would say that there is a massive difference between authentic faith and nominal belief, like religion in name only, like Christian as a label, and then somebody who has laid their life down, seeking to follow after Jesus, living a gospel-centered life. There's massive, massive difference. And sometimes we get the two confused. Now, I would say that all of us have probably had this experience where maybe you went to, to purchase something, and uh, you made a purchase. Maybe it was a, a pair of Air Jordans or a designer purse. And then you got it and you looked at it up close and you're like, oh, this is, this is a fake. This is just a poor replica of the real thing. Uh, when I was in uh, the Holy Land a few months ago, we were in Bethlehem walking down the street and we came across a coffee house. Maybe you recognize the logo. It was not a Starbucks, it was a Square Bucks. And then a few blocks down, it ran into another one, Stars and Bucks, right? And just poor replicas, you know, of the real thing. And that's kind of what I want to present to you today. Like, I don't know where you stand with God or, uh, you know, where you are in your spiritual journey. I, I would just ask you today, like, if somebody were to ask you who or what a Christian is, how would you articulate it? And think about maybe if we were just to ask, like, go out on the street, you know, downtown Indianapolis and just walk up to a stranger and just say, hey, you know, who or what is a Christian? Now, you might get a wide variety of answers. And you might get just kind of a whole cocktail of a response, you know, having to do with maybe people's political views or social views. And maybe it's not anywhere near like the real thing that we find that Jesus died for us to have. Here's where maybe kind of a quite possibly an explanation of if you were to ask somebody that question, they might say something along these lines. Well, a Christian is somebody who like, you know, believes in God and they're trying to be a good person and they're following a very strict, complex set of rules that they then impose onto other people. And I would say that for many people, that's kind of like maybe their understanding of what Christianity is. And I would contend that it is a false or a poor version of the real thing. So here's kind of the, the question on the table that has caused many people to deconstruct their faith and walk away is they've been kind of led to believe that Christianity is oppressive. 
that religion is harmful to other people in the good of society, in particular to minorities and to women. Now, unfortunately, this, was, this is not anything new. This was happening 2,000 years ago in the church of Galatia. And this is what prompted Paul to write the letter to the Galatians. And in it, he writes these words. Check it out with me. Chapter one, verses six and seven. Paul says, I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. Why is he saying so soon? Because these are first generation Christians. Like they've given their lives to Jesus for the very first time, not that long ago. And already they're beginning to deconstruct and walk away or follow a different way. And that's what he says in the very next sentence. He goes, you are following a different way. Here's the key word that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. So it's not an outright lie. It's just a twisting of the truth. Now, how were they doing this? By propagating some sort of fringe belief system? Well, well, no. What they were doing was they were actually, they were allowing their faith to sort of disintegrate into what we might call legalism and even oppression. And in the letter to the Galatians, Paul actually calls out two individuals by name who should have known better. Uh, A guy named Peter, maybe you recognize that name. He was one of Jesus' disciples, did a ton of good for the kingdom. And then a guy named Barnabas, whose name actually means encourager or an encouragement. And Paul calls them out because here's what Peter and Barnabas had slipped into. They forgot that the gospel message was for other ethnicities, in particular, the Gentiles of the day. And so they were refusing to have anything to do with them. They wouldn't even share a meal with them. And Paul gets up in their face and confronts them on it. And it's what causes him to say in chapter two of Galatians, verse 16, he goes, hey hey guys, we know that a person is, Here's, this is, these are two really critical words, made right. They, they are made right with God. How? Not by actions, not by trying to be a good person, but by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God. Notice this is like past tense. This is like passive. This is something that's done for you and in your place, not something you can earn because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's deconstructing false toxic religion and he's replacing it with real Christianity. He says, we're not justified by obeying the law. Now, this doesn't mean we throw the law out. The law is good. Jesus affirmed the law. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's understanding though, that none of us can be saved by obeying the law. Okay, well, what's the purpose of the law? You've heard me say this before. It's a mirror. The law shows us that we are sinners in need of the grace of God, that there's no way that we could ever live up to all of it. Actually, if you could follow the law, like cross every T, dot every I to perfection, God says that equals holiness, that equals righteousness. And there isn't anybody that can do it except for Jesus. And so we obviously, we would say that the law is good and it is right, but we don't hold it legalistically. We don't hold that other people to say, you know, you, you've got to do as I do in order to be justified in God's eyes. No, we have a standing before God because of what Jesus has done for us. And then from that standing, 
we bring every other area of our lives into alignment with Jesus Christ. That is real Christianity. Now, here's the, the question that's kind of on the table, though, because society will look at this and say, you know, I think that Christianity is oppressive and it's mistreated, in particular, minorities and women. And this is a vitally important question that those of us who are genuinely seeking to follow after Jesus, we need to take that seriously and we need to recognize that there have been those in our past and in our present who wear the name Christian, who have been oppressive and they have mistreated others. And those of us who are genuinely seeking to follow after Jesus, we should empathize with that and we should actually genuinely seek to understand somebody else's experience and not get defensive or angry or say things like, well, I've never done that or I don't know exactly what that feels like. We should, as Romans 12 urges us to do, mourn with those who mourn, grieve with those who grieve. Uh, I've gotten a, a lot of response from last week's message. Imagine that. And actually a bunch of you have asked, 99.9% .9 of it's been very, very good. I would say mostly the word that I've gotten is just grateful. People just been grateful. But the, probably the, the, the part of the message that I've gotten the most feedback on is that empathy piece. And we just, we don't see it modeled very often. Like we live in a canceled culture where if you disagree with me, you're dead to me. And, uh, and so we need to practice empathy more, especially as Christians. And empathy means, man, I, I'm gonna, there's one person clapping, I appreciate that. So, so uh, and by the way, uh, you can clap today. Some of you are like, is the rule from last week still on? No, you can clap, right? You can, you can say, man, I, and I know this is a tense conversation. I'm just gonna put that out there in the air, but we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about it in a way that is non-emotional and it's not divisive because this is uh, something that is very, very biblical. And it's something that we've got to get uh, our, our heads around. And so we need to grieve with those who grieve. So here's what we've got to do. Uh, by the way, Christianity is tension. It's, ten it's tension between grace and truth. It's tension between acceptance and affirmation. It it's, it's these tensions that we hold. And if you guys have been around here for a while, then you remember my rubber band analogy, that we got to hold tensions in play. And we're not good at that in, in our society. So on the one hand, we need to hold that, man, we're, we're so, so grateful for the country in which we live. I love America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I'm so grateful for the men and women in the military and the law enforcement that have made sacrifices to give us the country that we have. We can acknowledge that. We can celebrate that. We can hold that in one hand. And then in the other hand, and this doesn't diminish this over here, we can also, as Christians, recognize the stain and pain of racism in our past. More specifically, people who called themselves Christians who participated in the slave trade, people who called themselves Christians in the 1960s that were for segregation, people who called themselves Christians, specifically in the 1920s, who were part of the Ku Klux Klan. There's this infamous image from a church in Oregon in the 1920s. I'm gonna show it, I'll show it briefly, where you've got Klansmen in their garb, in a church, in a choir law, singing hymns under a banner that says Jesus saves. This is such a toxic misrepresentation of Christianity and it is so, so damaging to those who don't really understand the heart of the gospel message. It is also true that there are, have been and continue to be churches, religious movements and various institutions that wear the name Christian, that have taken advantage of and been abusive towards women. There are horrible instances of abuse and abuse cover up. There are far too many women that have been in um, 
a, an abusive marriage or they are the victims of domestic violence, they try to articulate that to, to maybe a pastor or a religious leader or an authority figure of some kind, and then they're just simply not believed. And it just is swept under the rug. Or, or they say things like, well, what are you doing wrong? What's your contribution to this? Or you need to forgive and to submit. And it's putting them, their, their lives continued at continued risk. And let me say this today. If you have ever felt the pain of oppression or marginalization, or you have been abused at the hands of somebody who called themselves a Christian, I want to genuinely express sorrow over that. And there, there's no excuse for it. That's not how God designed you to be. That's not what Jesus died for you to have. Jesus sees you as a valued child, a son or a daughter of the King and a valued member of his family. And so, so as Christians, we, we don't go, well, well, I've never been guilty of that. No, as Christians, we empathize with those who have. We say, oh man, I'm so sorry, that's your experience. And that is the only place that we can begin to have a conversation around it that can bring about real healing that only Jesus can bring about. Now, this is a really, really delicate issue. I know that. And I think it's important that we recognize the difference between real, authentic Christianity and the false, toxic representation of it that is far too common that hurts people. And so I think oftentimes within our culture, like in, in the Western world, we have a tendency in the Western world to think we're the center of the world anyway. But I think that oftentimes when it comes to like Christianity and religion, we think that this was sort of started in the Midwest. Like, you know, the, buck, the buckle of the Bible belt and it's just kind of gone out to the rest of the world. I've heard people say things to me like, well, Aaron, you're only a Christian because you were born in the Midwest. And I was like, well, number one, I was born in Baltimore. Thank you very much. And, and number two, I know Christians that have been born in other parts of the world, they weren't in the, this didn't get started in Kansas. All right, so, so here's what I mean. A few years ago, um, there was all this outrage, maybe some of you remember this, when um, Chick-fil-A uh, started their first restaurant in New York City. And there was a bunch of people upset because there was a company with uh, Christian-based values that out of the Midwest that was launching in uh, an urban city like New York. And there's a bunch of articles written on it and, and they actually called it an infiltration. And they said that, you know, a company that, you know, selling really good chicken sandwiches and excellent waffle fries, you know, they, they, because they've got these Christian values, they're coming into the city, this is an infiltration. And Christianity is oppressive towards certain uh, uh, groups, you know, ethnicities and, and, and women. And this is what prompted a professor from Yale University named Stephen Carter. I'm not quite sure where he is lands faith-wise, but here's what he said. He goes, hey, if you are maligning Christianity, you are not maligning the people that you think you are. Because around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians, when you take the entire world throughout time, and even today, they are women of color. He is saying that real Christianity throughout history and in scripture was never meant to be a movement that was oppressive, but it was for the good of every human being and for the flourishing of communities, including women and people from every ethnicity. Christianity got started primarily as a movement crossing ethnic lines. It was started with the Jews and crossed the ethnic line into the Gentiles, the Greek. Uh, this was a movement originally, when you study the history of it, in the first century, women flocked towards Christianity because they were so mistreated and abused by Roman society. And that brings us back 
to Paul's argument in Galatians 3. We looked at these verses last week and I wanna look at them again today. He, he writes these stunning words in verses 26 through 28. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have, notice the terminology, put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. So here's the result of that. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the essence of real Christianity. And what you need to understand is that uh, when Paul wrote these words, not only would they have been revolutionary, they would have been extremely controversial in Jewish society of the day. And here, here's why. The, the typical Jewish man woke up every morning and after his cup of coffee, he would pray this daily prayer. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying this is what they prayed. God, thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave or a woman. In other words, they would say, God, thank you that you made me a Jew, that you made me a man and you made me free. And what they were doing was they found their sense of worth and identity in their ethnicity, their gender and their socioeconomic status. And Paul is coming directly against that kind of thinking. And he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa guys, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are clothed in Christ. So the most important thing about you is your identity in Jesus. And this invitation wasn't offered to you because you were a Jewish man. This invitation is offered to every ethnicity, to every gender and to people across the socioeconomic status. Now, all of us today look to clothe ourselves in something. We've been doing it since Genesis three. In Genesis three, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin came into the world and they realized that they were naked and vulnerable for the very first time, what did they do? They uh, made some clothes out of fig leaves and they covered themselves. And we've been doing it ever since. And I just wanna ask you today to just to do a little bit of self-evaluation. What are you clothing yourself in today? And you might be, I'm not talking about like, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch and or whatever your thing is, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, where, where are you finding your sense of worth and identity? Like um, for many of us, we're clothing ourselves in our accomplishments. We're clothing ourselves in our reputation or our career or the amount in our bank account. Uh, many of us are finding our sense of worth and identity maybe in athletics or maybe some sort of skill that we have or maybe it's in some sort of community that we are a part of. And it's not that those other things can't be a part of who you are. Paul just says as a Christ follower, they are not primary. Your primary identity is that you have clothed yourself in Christ and that invitation is made for all. So I want, to understand, I want us to understand this. Um, Christianity is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. There's tension there. So Jesus, it's radically um, exclusive in the sense that Jesus calls himself the door. And on the other side of the door is life like abundant, joy-filled, you know, fulfilling life. And he would say, all are invited through the door, both Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, all are invited. So it is radically exclusive because Jesus is the only door. It is radically inclusive in the sense that it is an invitation made to everyone. 
And Paul says in the passage, it's made to both Jew and Gentile. So what he is saying is that your ethnicity is not what makes you right with God. There was no ethnicity that has sort of like a leg up on the others and that God is also not trying to eliminate the ethnicities. He is trying to illuminate himself through the ethnicities. He is drawing all people unto himself from every single background. Here's the way that Revelation 21 describes it. Every tongue, nation, tribe, all the ethnicities coming before God. This is why we still have so much work to do in this, but we will continue to pursue it. The church should be a multi-ethnic representation of the kingdom of God. The church should look more like a salad bowl than an egg carton. Not because we're trying to be politically correct or make some sort of political statement, but because of Revelation 21, where it says that the kingdom of God is multi-ethnic, that people from every tribe and nation and tongue come before the Lamb of God and his throne as a unified body of people. So God's not seeking homogeny, he's seeking unity in Diversity And the overarching theme of scripture from Genesis through Revelation is extremely clear. God is out to destroy the dividing wall of hostility and create one new man from among every nation of men under our brown skin, Middle Eastern savior. Jesus came to establish the most multi-ethnic move in history. And he did. I wanna show you this uh, graphic. This is uh, this coming from Pew Research. And Christianity is the most evenly distributed movement in, in the world. So let me, let me show you what this looks like on a map. Most world religions came from and are localized to a specific geographic region. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people from all these world religions that live in various places around the world. I'm saying it's very localized. It got started and it's very localized. So, so if we, I could show you the map. Hinduism, very localized to India. Buddhism, very localized to parts of Asia. Islam, very localized to the Middle East, but Christianity is global. Like, and, and in fact, uh, uh, Christianity, uh, where it's exploding the most, I would say America is quickly becoming one of the nation's biggest mission fields. There are other countries sending missionaries to us. Uh, but where Christianity is exploding is in the Southern hemisphere and in places like China where the church is persecuted. It is not localized to the Midwest. It is global. Paul also uh, says here, slave and free. And when Paul writes this, he is referring to the socioeconomic status of the day because slavery in Roman culture was not race-based slavery as much as it was economic-based slavery. You had the wealthy and the poor. So Paul is saying, if the invitation to the way of Jesus is made to everyone regardless of socioeconomic status, which once again would have been so revolutionary in their day. And historically, the people that are the most likely to give their lives to Jesus are the economically poor. Now that doesn't mean that it is impossible if you are wealthy to give your life to Jesus. That's not what that means. This isn't poverty theology. Jesus would say it's harder. And I think the reason why it's harder is because there's only one thing that you need in order to become a Christian. Need. And oftentimes for those of us who have clothed ourselves in our resources, it's much more difficult for us to see that. By the way, you can have a lot of money or no money at all and it can still be an idol because you're too focused on it. This is what Tim Keller would say, that money is God's chief competition for the throne of our hearts. 
And when Christianity first got launched, it was the first movement that took care of the poor. It was the first movement that advocated for the rights of every human being. Because in Roman society, not only were women mistreated, but obviously um, female babies were even looked down upon worse than that. So a lot of female infants were either um, put to death or abandoned. And it was the Christians who brought them in and started this first like foster movement or orphanage type movement where they're rescuing female infants. And throughout history, we see that Christians were some of the first to care for the poor. Many Christians started our first hospitals, our first orphanages. Luke Ferry, a French philosopher, wrote a popular little book entitled The Brief History of Thought. He is not a Christian, but he writes from a historical perspective. And this is what he writes. I must recognize that we essentially have human rights in our world because of Christianity. It is quite clear that in this Christian reevaluation of the human person, the philosophy of human rights of which we subscribe to today would have never established itself. So understand the weight of what he's saying. He's saying that it was the Christians who first had a reevaluation of people, the human person. What does that mean? It means the Christians saw there was value in every single human being, regardless of who they were, what they could contribute to society, how far along they were, you know, in maturity wise, every human being has value in and of itself. Why? Because we are made in the image of our heavenly father. We are image bearers of God. And so this is why, this is why when it comes to an issue that's so divisive and emotional within our society, the issue of abortion, it oftentimes gets framed this way. You can either be pro-life or pro-women. Christianity would say, no, we must be both because the image of God is placed upon the unborn. So we speak for the unborn and we come around women who find themselves in a vulnerable spot to minister and care for them. This is not an either or as society would say, we must do both because the image of God is placed upon both. Lastly, Paul says male and female. And Jesus stepped into a world that devalued, discarded and dismissed women and he elevated their status. As I've already said, Roman culture, they mistreated and abused women. They, they uh, saw them as property and their testimony was not valid in court. And then Jesus comes along and just turns all that upside down. Jesus elevated women from his birth to his death, to his resurrection. So uh, the announcement of Jesus' birth was made to a woman. Jesus was born from a, uh, the womb of a woman. Jesus healed both men and women. He included women in his parables, which was unheard of at the time. One of my favorite stories is of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha has the gift of hospitality. And Jesus is there doing some teaching at their house. And Martha's in the kitchen. You know, she's preparing the charcuterie board. Did I say that right? I always say that word wrong. And she's in the kitchen, you know, preparing all that. And she gets so frustrated with her sister. And she's like, Jesus, would you tell Mary to come in here and help me? And Jesus, instead of doing that, he affirms Mary. What was Mary doing? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus with the rest of the men listening. And Jesus says, no, she's where she should be. The resurrection was discovered and announced by women. Jesus elevated the status of women. Therefore, as Christian, the very first movement of Christians Women in the first century flocked to it 
And here's why. Professor Rodney Stark, who's a professor of sociology, writes these words. He says, the early church was attractive to women, including women of high status, because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far far higher status than women in the Greco-Roman world at large. Now you might read that and you might say, okay, but it doesn't really explain, Aaron, why cases of domestic abuse and violence and divorce rates seem to be just as high inside the church than outside the church. And I would say, yep, that is a tragedy. And I would say that's not a result of real Christianity. That is a result of toxic Christianity, a false representation. It's the fraud. It's the fake. Here's what I mean. There's a uh, author by the name of Nancy Piercy. I've been recommending her book, Love Thy Body. Her newest book is on toxic masculinity. Can't highly recommend that enough either. And in it, she actually distinguishes, she makes this distinguishment between what she calls nominal Christian men and what I would just call like godly Christian men. Not, Not perfect men, but men who are laying their lives down, who are following the way of Jesus, sacrificial love, growing in the fruits of the spirit, seeking to go first by following after Jesus. There's a massive difference between those two. And she would say that nominal Christian men are defined as those who identify with religious tradition because of their family or cultural background. Well, what does that mean? Well, maybe they grew up Catholic or Baptist, but they haven't been to church in years or they only show up on Christmas and Easter. They're just Christians in name only, but there's no fruits of the spirit. There's no changeable difference in the way that they're living their life. Now, now she would point out, research backs this up. It is found that nominal Christian men have the highest rates of divorce and domestic violence, even higher than outright secular men. They spend less time with their children. Their wives report significantly lower levels of happiness. Their marriages are fragile. Whereas Christian men are 35% less likely to divorce than secular men, nominals are 20% more likely to divorce than secular men. These numbers are tragic and staggering. They tell us that it would actually be better for you just to be outright secular than for you to just be nominal in your faith. However, there's some good good news to this. Like real authentic Christ following men the stats show that they shatter the negative stereotypes of religious men. They are more loving to their wives and emotionally engaged with their children than any other group in America. They are the least likely to divorce. They have the lowest levels of domestic abuse and violence. Oftentimes we've heard this for years. I've actually said this from this platform and I've been wrong that uh, we, we see that the divorce rates inside the church are just as high as those outside the church. But actually that's not true that marriages of of couples who are genuinely seeking to follow after God, their divorce rates are much, much lower. The divorce rates of nominal Christian couples are much, much higher and it skews the percentages. Sociologist Brad Wilcox, one of the nation's top experts on marriage, summarized his research in Christianity Today. Here's what he said. "This This is tragic. The most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. That stat should rip our hearts out. And you take that blended with men who are genuinely seeking to follow after Jesus, it just skews the percentages. So so what do we do with that? Well, this is the invitation to no longer 
be a nominal, but to go all in. Well, what is that? Well, Paul ends this in chapter five of Galatians, verse one. He says this, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and you don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. And then in verse 13, he says, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. I think one of the biggest distinguishing marks of a nominal Christian and a real Christian is we say, I'm gonna serve these other people in love. I'm gonna lay down my life because Jesus laid down his life for me. The highest ethic in our society today is tolerance. It's why we hear about it so often. And I would say, and it sounds so good too, but it's misleading. See, the highest ethic for Christians is not tolerance, it's love. Love is greater than tolerance. Listen, Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. Tolerance didn't put Jesus on a cross. Love did. And love says this, man, I accept you and receive you no matter what. Like you are welcome here, but love says something greater. Tolerance says, hey, you just come here just as you are and you can just stay that way, you do you. Love says, no, you are received the way you are, but God loves you far too much to leave you there. He wants you to grow. He wants you to clothe yourself in Jesus. There is a better way that leads to human flourishing. And it is not the tolerance that society promotes. This is why it's like so confusing. And this is a, I'm gonna have to preach a whole sermon on this at some point. Sometime I'm gonna have to do it. Is that because I get so many that come in here and we confuse the biblical script with the secular script. And we just confuse this idea of acceptance and affirmation. Just because you're accepted doesn't mean you're affirmed in every area of life. That is not the gospel. I don't want you to affirm me in every area of life. You wanna know why? Because I gotta grow. I gotta change, I gotta be transformed. I gotta leave the old ways behind and grow to look more and more like Jesus. So here's the invitation today, two groups of people. For those of you, and you know, like I am not a Christian. And I thought being a Christian meant somebody who just generally believed in God, trying to be a good person, following a complex set of rules that they imposed onto others. That is not a Christian. I wanna invite you to the real thing, to come through the door of Jesus Christ you are received and welcomed as you are. Radically inclusive, radically exclusive because Jesus is the only one that can bring you back to life. Second invitation. Those of you sitting there today, listening to this, whether you are in an auditorium, you're in your car, you're in your living room, your kitchen, or you're on the treadmill. And you realize right now, man, I, I'm a nominal. I've got one foot in, one foot out. Like I'm, I'm just kind of like casually following after Jesus or I've mixed the scripts. The invitation is for you to simply lay that down and to go all in and to clothe yourself in Christ and to realize the most important thing about me is my identity in Christ. Everything else is a distant second. And that is the only way for this to be the best news for you in your life and for the rest of society. So would you come, would you come? Father, we're so grateful that you didn't just tolerate us, you love us and you gave your everything 
so that we might be received, forgiven, changed, and transformed. So God, I pray that today we could grieve with those who grieve, who have been hurt and abused and damaged by toxic religion, but that we would step into real authentic faith, which means repentance and brokenness and change. Because you gave your all for us, we give our all for you. And so Father, from that standing in which you declare us righteous by the work, finished work of Jesus, God, we simply receive it. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would come into us and change us as people from the inside out. Because right now we have a society that is desperately looking for not only a definition, but a real life living example of what a true Christian is. And so God, may we step into that by your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name and everyone says.